0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Discipline Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today, it is a privilege to introduce to you our guest, United States Air Force Retired Brigadier General, Michael Longoria. I'm not sure how to introduce somebody whose bio reads like a history book. After graduating from the United States Air Force Academy, General Longoria started in college recruiting. From there, he ended up in special operations combat control. He had multiple special operations deployments and command assignments. He became a special advisor to the secretary of defense, a special advisor to the president of the United States. He was the commanding officer in charge of the international coalition assigned with finding and capturing high value terrorists in Iraq. He was the commanding general in charge of the 93rd air and ground wing. And that's just barely scratching the surface of his career highlights. He served as a college professor for multiple colleges and universities. He's had several peer review articles published in academic journals. He is a sought after speaker and resource. He still serves as a resource for our military and our government. He really is an amazing man with a humble perspective, a fantastic perspective and I am thrilled that he was willing to share his time with us and share some insights as what he's learned from communication throughout his entire career. Before we jump into the conversation, we've got to thank our sponsors, of course, Humantel. Check out Humantel.com for the industry-leading online training for accurate, emotional, nonverbal behavior reading and detection. You want to know what somebody is likely thinking or feeling when you see their emotions shift? Humantel.com is the place to go to check out the very best training that there is available. If you go... Enter the code INQUASIVE25, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E25 for a 25% discount on all their online training. Check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine as well, ei-magazine.com, for all of their emotional intelligence library, videos, podcasts, articles. They're constantly, events, they're constantly putting together new content and new events going on. So please check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine. And of course, we have the International Association of Interviewers. Go to certifiedinterviewer.com, especially if you're in the world of investigative interviewing. IAI is constantly updating their content, putting on new events. Their whole focus is putting resources together to help professional investigative interviewers maximize their potential and continue to leverage more legal and ethically sound ways to obtain the truth in all of their interviews. So please check out the groups that support us. So now without further ado, retired Brigadier General, Michael Longoria. Or- Good morning, sir. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I really appreciate it. How are you? Great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. I know you're in between jobs, in between jobs almost makes it sound like you are out of work. I didn't mean it like that, but between roles at the moment, kind of in a, in a ready to commute phase. So I really appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk to us today, really to get started. It's, it's not every day that's I certainly get to speak to a retired general, so I very much appreciate you taking the time. And maybe the obvious yet obligatory place to start the conversation is what initially drove you to join the Air Force in the first place?
1: Well, I was attracted in uh, junior high school. I, I think we call it middle school now, but in the Back in the day, we called it uh, junior, you know, elementary school, junior high school, and then high school. I saw from a recruiter uh, an opportunity for the service academy, and specifically the Air Force Academy. And so they were marketing to uh, students,
2: basically. And I went,
1: wow. that's something that I think I would like to do. And my parents uh, were very supportive. And just a short note on my parents. love My parents are both passed uh, past on now. But I feel like I was privileged or born with privilege. And I tell this to audiences because I want to be a, kind of upfront about it. And I feel like I was born with privilege. So my parents were 17 and 18 when
2: they had me.
1: <laughs> or when I think about that, I went, wow, having a child when, you're, when
2: both parents are teenagers.
1: I, I could imagine you know I have four sons I could not imagine having children when I was a teenager uh and to show you how remarkable they were they um no they they had just graduated from high school, and that was the sum total of their education, but to this day, they were the wisest, smartest people. I've ever known. And I really mean that. Uh, it's not a kind of a, how many degrees that you have? and that, you know, I mean, I, I want everybody to be proud of their parents, uh, you know, and some parents are doctors and lawyers and, you know, uh, PhDs. And that's wonderful, too. But I feel like my parents were the smartest people, but they didn't have those degrees. Uh, my uh, mom was a very, uh, very, very lily white Scotch Irish uh, woman, very good student in high school, uh, very Methodist. My father was a very dark Mexican American uh, Catholic.
2: And they
1: went to the same high school, and you know, there's all kinds of little stories about how they met. Um, I won't go into all those because you know that's not the purpose of this. But let's just say my dad had run from Galveston to the city of Houston, which is 56 miles. Mm-hmm. In that day, he 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 ran, and he was a great athlete. My mom was a good athlete too. Uh, both good students. So these were really good kids, if you know what I mean. Uh, so he had run fifty-six miles from Galveston to Houston, and that night went to a dance where he met my mom. So I go, wow, you know, and it took me a while to piece that story <laughs> together, you know, because there's always a little different viewpoint but the facts were clear my dad had run that far they did meet at a dance and you know how many times they dated or what whatever I I don't know but apparently I was part of one of those unique engagements (laughs) so so, you know that's uh those were my parents I'm uh, very proud of them they encouraged me,
2: everything I did. And when I said, hey, I think I want to go to the Air Force Academy. They went, well, you, you
1: sure? You know, you want to go in the military? <laughs> yeah, and this was uh, the 70s. So the military didn't have a, necessarily a great reputation coming out of Vietnam or the post-Vietnam era. But I still wanted to do it because the Air Force Academy to me was a a tremendous opportunity.
2: And it didn't cost anything. I mean,
1: I think my dad really liked that. I think. (laughs) Um, And they would have done anything for me. You know, if I wanted to go somewhere else, they would have scraped up the money somehow. and, And I knew that. But so that was. That's how I got into uh, the Air Force: is to go to the Air Force Academy, become a cadet, and then uh, when I graduated, became an officer. So that's uh, what compelled me to to join the Air Force. If you will.
0: I appreciate you sharing your background, and I'm mindful that that is a, an extremely short version of a, a much longer and more right. intricate story. <laughs> uh, but certainly appreciate you sharing that, and especially the the uniqueness. Of your background your family situation and and all the love and support that you experience there um really quick for our viewers watching the video as opposed to listening to the audio we probably do need to point out that you are sitting in front of a wonderful eagle sculpture and that's the the wing oh. be- the behind you so just wanted to clear that up for everybody we were when we logged on we were, okay. we were talking about that a little bit so now never, yeah. everybody knows that that's an that's an eagle back there
1: yeah guy. I guess right now when I'm looking it looks like I have Horns or something, but the,
0: I think it's just the Air Force I, keeping an eye on you.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's the Air Force. Uh, <laughs> over- and the eagle is a we 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 love birds. Uh, so par, pardon me, you're okay. So we love love birds. Um, so it's I
2: What's, have
1: actually little statues of birds all over the place. Uh, I love birds. You know, it's a, it's a thing. What can I say?
0: <laughs> Nothing to say. What's more American than an eagle? Yeah. So you mentioned that it was originally a recruiter that called your attention to the Air Force Academy. And do I call correctly that your first role in the Air Force was as a recruiter? Do I have that right?
1: Yeah. Um, it wasn't supposed to be. So when I graduated and it was... A bit tenuous that I would graduate, believe it or not. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't want to, I want don't want people to think I was the smartest person or the worst person. I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. If if you know what I mean, uh, average Joe or whatever. That, that's what it was—an average Joe. But uh, I had had a car accident my senior year and it was really bad, it was really bad. And so I missed, you know, like two months of the last semester because it, it, I was in the hospital and I had to work really hard to meet all the requirements because all the semesters at the academy are basically the same. You don't get to you know do uh, you know the 12 hour kind of thing that you can do in other colleges that's that's not going to happen at a service academy uh so you're taking 20 21 22 semester hours every semester without break nonstop uh because they got to pack a lot of stuff in in so the curriculum and all of your Majors and all of the military things and all of the all of the things that you have to do, uh, but the academic portion doesn't uh, doesn't change. Even though you got all of those things to do, so I was worried that I wouldn't make it, and um, and I'd lost my pilot qualification because of wow. the car accident. Um, I mean, just to summarize it, I, I have a legitimate excuse, a legitimate excuse. Or being kind of as is is ugly as I as I was <laughs> as I am, because you know I had four hundred and seventy stitches in my face, my face was kind of ripped off, my neck was broken, and my jaw was uh was busted. And so they patched me up in the face, and they restructured my jaw. And uh, my neck did heal after some surgeries. And so there was, and I didn't even know what I looked like, because I was out for like two or three weeks, completely conscious, but not really uh, too terribly aware. And I was unrecognizable to anybody except for my mother, you know, who she didn't recognize me at first. She said, you know, she's my mom, you know, she would know everything. And so she knew where every birthmark was literally on my body. So, you know, she said, well, I had them kind of turn and we looked and said, yep, that's, that's my son. So it was that bad of an accident. And I feel very lucky, very, very privileged. Once again, very lucky and blessed. Uh, Not to bring the religious component into this, but blessed. Certainly. Uh, And so I graduated, wasn't going to pilot training. I I wanted to go to pilot training, but, you know, things just worked out where it couldn't. So, you know, what was I going to do? And, And I joined the minority affairs group. And our job was to recruit um, minority of students, outstanding minority students, mm-hmm. because it was an effort for us. It was before we kind of called things, uh, you know, equal opportunity. It was out a little before that uh, time period, because then we went from that to kind of equal opportunity to uh, the, the social actions. Uh, I mean, it, this kind of thing has been around for a while because we've been trying to as hard as we can give as many people a wide diverse audience opportunities that they may not have had before, and our job was to go find those great students who possibly were in junior high school or high school and say hey we'll help we'll help you uh." the Air Force Academy wasn't going to change their standards. Uh, that wasn't going to happen. So we needed to find the best and the brightest. And and it was an amazing thing. A lot of the people I recruited went on to do unbelievable, great things in the Air Force. Um, from being the fighter pilots, bomber pilots, just, uh, uh, space and all those kinds of things. So I actually enjoyed that year. But you know that was kind of a a support role if you will Mm -hmm. i I needed to get operational and and do something that's why all the my dad used to say what is the reason we paid his tax money to to do this if you're not like doing anything for for the country okay like so I need to get a job in the Air Force where I was doing something uh, for the country. So let's
0: And and doing something is a real mild way, at best, to put what you ended up doing. Real quick, before we make the transition to some of the early operational roles that you were in, I am curious, from a recruiting standpoint, I imagine that there were some persuasive conversations that needed to take place with individuals in order to encourage them, not only to join the Air Force, but commit to the standards necessary to be accepted at the Academy. Uh, And obviously that was at the very early stages of your career, but I'm curious, were there any lessons that you took from those conversations that served you later in your career as you progressed within the Air Force?
1: Oh, absolutely. I had uh, one uh, senior officer explain uh, our roles, and
2: there were about eight or nine of us—not
1: uh, nine, nine of us—that had this role, and we—we'd all just graduated in the class of 1979, and so, and we were staying at the academy. You know, most people wanted to, you know, uh, literally bomb burst uh, <laughs> out of the academy and go. Go on to great careers. And but we stayed, we stayed back. And when he explained when the senior officer explained this to me, and it stuck with me today. Why, in other words, answering the question, why am I here? What am I doing? What's my job? Uh, just saying recruiter uh and going to high schools and trying to talk people to come in, you know, you know, okay, but what's my job? And the way he explained, I remember today, and this was. Oh, I don't know how many decades ago, but um uh, at least four or five, but no, so, He said, there are three components to be successful in your job. One, you got to be young so that you can relate to the students. He goes, "And you're that, And you didn't even try and you've already got one of those components. Okay. Two, you have to understand the process and it's a very complicated process. How to get a congressional nomination first, possibly a presidential nomination, um, people that we should maybe send to the prep school first um, to actually try to get an appointment uh, to a service academy. Besides the application process you multiply a normal college application process by about a factor of 10. And I really mean the whole enchilada is it's complicated. And you have to understand the process. He goes, because you've done it. Um, we can show you the other increases of the process, but you have to learn the process because you're going to be helping people. And if you don't know the process, you, you, you can't really help people, okay? Process, number two. Number three is that what's absolutely the, and this is to the persuasive part, uh, is the the ethos that you bring because you did it. You just graduated. You got the opportunity. You went through the process, and you did it. He says, so those, if when you add those three components to your youth, the fact that you just did something and you know these processes in detail, you can do a better job, and he said, "Then I can. Now, he was a lieutenant colonel. I go, you mean I can do a better job than he can? Yes, because, number one, he's older. I'm more youthful, <laughs> uh, you know, regardless of what I look like. <laughs> okay and but I'm more youthful so that would work with the audience that you're that you're talking to um, and the reason you have to understand the process is because you're going to be explaining these things to parents and that's where you know the million questions and if you can't answer those questions you, you won't be affected so that's what reminds me most that for any uh, marketing, Person or are or, you or even in sales or, or what, whatever you're doing you have to have the right components um sometimes youth gets is it's, it's, it's going to get in your way because if you're trying to sell something else that says hey i've got 25 years of experience well how could you have 25 years of experience you're not 25 years old okay <laughs> so that would be a detriment rather than you know something that works positive in your favor. But also, if you don't understand what you're, the product that you're selling and you can't answer questions about the, the product, the, the thing that you're trying to, to sell, it's true that maybe you can still be successful. I, I don't know. But I think knowing your product inside and out and knowing your competitors kind of inside and out that's got to be helpful. I mean, it it couldn't hurt you. I don't, I don't think. And and then the recent thing, I've actually done it. I both live and you know, I, or, or whatever. components I think are almost necessary in any kind of a pitch. That you, and, you know, we can talk about the differences, but those components, and I learned that. Uh, f- from the very beginning um and it stuck with me uh, this long uh, that's why when we record now we use young people <laughs> <laughs> young people
0: yeah and you're, you're spot on the the credibility that not only the experience but the perspective the ability to relate brings into the conversation starts taking down those barriers and opens up for For the deeper conversation, and I think you hit on something key there as well that often gets overlooked, the ability to answer questions. It's one thing to be able to put together a presentation, but when you start getting asked questions, that's where the rubber meets the road. Can you do a good job answering those questions or not, especially on the fly to somebody else who might be emotional or confused or those kinds of things? So being able to do that clearly is is a necessity. Right. And that's
1: why I liked your book. Because, mm-hmm. in my view, uh, in this, uh, in the interpersonal world, uh, not the public policy world, uh, the larger, broader communication, but in the interpersonal world, the ability—because I call it cross-examination in 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 in, in the more public uh, form—but that, that that the word cross-exam, I mean cross-examine—that sounds a-, a little negative, mm-hmm. so. Uh, we'll supplant that with discussion, conversation, you know, where I'm just having a conversation and those kinds of things. Uh, you get at all of those, the, all of those tool sets that you have to use. And that's the only way you can arrive at a truth from, from someone or to get, get that out is to kind of have that very smooth conversation, but, if you can't participate in a way where you provide some, you know, some additional knowledge that they didn't have, then they're thinking they're they're not, you, you're just recording and you're not participating. So you have to be able to both ask questions and answer questions, you know, in this dialogue. And, and, and you get a <laughs> book. That's why I loved it. Uh, literally, because you need that to everybody needs that tool set.
0: Well, I, I, to I be able to do that. that. Yeah. Thank you. I know the operational part of your background is extremely important to you. And again, I do want to make it clear to everybody who may not know me and is listening. I did not serve in the military. So out of respect, I want to make sure that that's, that's clear early in this conversation. But if I understand correctly, you started out as a combat controller. If for the people who may not know, could you quickly explain what that is?
1: So the Air Force, um, amazing place. And as everybody knows, the Air Force flies airplanes, okay, all kinds of airplanes, whether they're inhabited with a crew or they're uninhabited. We used to say unmanned, manned versus unmanned, but, you know, we, we changed terminology to not, uh, you know. Understood be generic. So it's uninhabited now. So there are aircraft that we have human beings inside that are actually operating it, And we have other aircraft that are not, that are operated by remote control, if you will. Mm -hmm. And we fly satellites too. So we don't have people on the satellites, but we have thousands of people that constantly watch, monitor, and Move satellites around uh, all the time. And the Air Force is big into air, space, and cyber. So, for our audiences, they will mostly know that we created a whole separate service now, the United States Space Force. And so, under the Department of the Air Force, there is the Air Force, as everybody has known that, and Uh, the U.S. Space Force. It's modeled mostly like the Department of the Navy, where they have the Navy and the Marine Corps. So the Navy is a service, the Marine Corps is a service, the Air Force is a service, and U.S. Space Force is a service. So we used to say in the Air Force, we do airspace and cyber. Now, we've kind of, the Air Force focuses on air inside, air air, air inside. Okay. And there's a whole bunch of flying airplanes in that business. And doing other important things, but flying airplanes is the big. Okay. And in the flying airplane business, you need all kinds of people that help command and control uh, these airplanes. Some because we have an airlift system that requires, you know, these communication nodes and, and support nodes all the way down to where the airplane's going to take off and land. And in the fighter-bomber business, we need these command and control nodes because, you know, where do the fighters go? What, are, what do they do? Who do they attack? And what do you know, so you need all kinds of people in that control business. We are the extension of the command and control. And as a combat controller, I was on the end of that line. In other words, not, not at the beginning, not up here at the headquarters, but I was on the end of that line. In other words, I was actually talking to an airplane, giving it a control instruction to do something, whether that is to blow something up, uh, land, uh, attack. Uh, fire a rocket whatever uh, that had to be done and so as a combat controller I was mostly with the land forces so I lived with the army slept with the army was with the army day in day night but I was an airman and so my job was to extend air power in support of land forces and so that that it's really what a combat controller does. Now, their air traffic, you know, for for your audience, you know, there's like, their air traffic controllers, their forward air controllers. That's, and it was a mixture of all of those uh, things at the tactical level.
0: Yes, sir. Is it, or right, may I say it this way, how safe is it for me to assume that when you spent that time in the army, or with the army, excuse me, at the very front end, that you often found yourself, in very real combat situations, often with, I believe, do I recall correctly, Rangers or other similar elements?
1: Uh, Absolutely. So I was a a special ops uh, person. And that's how I got started. And so every day we were working with uh, special forces operators, uh, US Army Special Forces, and that's Army SF and we were working with army rangers for the most part. Now, uh, later, I would work with um, the more conventional side of the army with, um, with infantry units or armor units, okay, or uh, mechanized units of some kind. Uh, uh, and those are different maneuver divisions if you will of the conventional army and they need they need for Air controllers embedded with them as well as soft but my bias of course is for special operations because that's where i started and so hanging around sf guys and rangers was that's kind of how i grew up you know as a yes, young lieutenant being at holbrook field and fort bragg And we're going to change the name of Fort Bragg here pretty quickly to Fort Liberty, I believe.
0: Okay. I didn't know. I imagine that was quite the education for you. Uh, The the one follow-up question for the time we have right now that that I'd love to ask is, I can imagine that that role required you to give very precise communications with very real consequences in a very stressful situation or potentially quite stressful situations. So with that background, the question that I have is what communication lessons did you learn having to be effective in that environment that continued to serve you throughout your career?
1: Well, when you're going to drop a bomb, whether it's in combat or not, uh, you do that with a degree of precision that you have to have. There's no, um, there's no faking it. Um, You're talking to a very experienced aviator, normally in that, let's say an F-16 or an F-15 Eagle or B-52, or you're talking to very experienced aircrew that know exactly what their weapon system can and can't do. And you're working with a ground force commander of some sort, and they're telling you that, okay, uh, the enemy's over there, and you know that already, because you're completely wedded into their ground battle, if you will. And you're going to try to bring in air power so that we, and for your audience, I I do apologize, but I can't help myself. You're going to kill, I want to kill the bad people and not the good people. And by definition, your people are the good people, and the people you're trying to kill are the bad people. Uh, that's just the the fact. So that kind of it that that little transactional approach happens thousands of times in combat. Not just once; it happens thousands of times, and we. Have kind of a saying in the in the air air control business that there's a possibility of a bad bomb, and a bad bomb is where we kill our own people, and not the enemy, or we kill a combination, and it, it doesn't do what we wanted it to do, and didn't meet the intent of, and, and combat is like that. Uh, sometimes things don't work out, and. And people are responsible for things not working out. In the air control business, you don't want to be responsible because you'll never forget it. So you can drop a thousand good bombs, do exactly what you intended to do. And one of them,
2: one, can be bad,
1: and it will change the lives, your life in the lives of people around you forever, forever. And you just think about that. I mean, tell a professional football player, hey, you're going to catch a thousand passes, but you're just
2: going to drop one. They'd pay you $75 million a year over and over and over and over and over again.
1: In the control business, your your life almost is over, and it should be, because you are responsible for possibly killing uh, the good guys. Now, I have a group of people that have been volunteers. They got into this business because that's what they wanted to do. That pressure is, and the way to manage that is is built in to them, and they know very clearly what that is. And it's hard to explain to someone who hasn't actually been there and lived it. It's very hard. But let me just say that um, I love these people.
2: I love being around them, working with them,
1: working for them to help them. And yes, they were under my command, but you know it was the honor of my life. Those are the kinds of people. Um, they are tantamount to brain surgeons on a battlefield, trying to do brain surgery and do just the perfect right thing with a degree of precision that you you cannot you you cannot substitute for that precision. Just no way. No matter what kind of machines we have, you cannot substitute this part, this judgment part in in that world. So that's the world I lived in. Therefore, the standards were pretty high. And right at the beginning, when you're new, you don't have that precision. You don't have it. You don't have the knowledge or the experience that others around you have. And I was an officer. And so all of these NCOs, non-commissioned all of them. All of them had more experience than I did. Almost all of them had been in combat, and I tell a story about one person individually, uh, and I normally tell it to the audience that you know are Tac P, Ford air controllers, combat controllers, PJs. You know, I normally uh, speak to that audience, and so. They'd immediately understand. But this senior NCO worked for me, and yet mentored was my chief mentor.
2: In other words, guiding me. But I was the officer, and they're the NCO. So
1: you don't don't come in as a second lieutenant and go – Okay, now um, you know, this is what we're gonna do, and this is how we're gonna do it, and you know, like, what? Yeah, who are you? You're you're a second lieutenant. You need to have read your book and go, what is the most disciplined learning that I can possibly do? And 99.99% of it is going to be is going to be listening with intent. Because the people who are going to be speaking to you, and they'll do it respectfully, are all going to be junior to you. And they're all going to know more than you do. Every single one. When you develop that way, you cannot help but learn to appreciate the value of those human beings. You you, there, there's no other way to grow up I mean I mean some people are a lot smarter than I am go well you know they know everything well I don't know how you know everything but okay it won't work it, it wouldn't have worked in my business you absolutely positive you know it sounds nice to say hey wait, I listen to my people you know like you know that sounds nice it, 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 it reads well and I'm in a leadership book or, you know, a marketing book, but it's absolutely necessary. It's not not like something just nice to say. It's absolute. Lives depend on that level of precision. And you're going to get that level of precision following these standards, things that we've learned, and you're going to get them from the people that have actually done it. So when I was at Hobart, which is uh, Florida, it's, uh, near Eglin Air Force Base. That's, uh, every day as a lieutenant, I would fly on a a little bit of airplane, like an O2 or an O1, possibly an OV10, with an experienced um, FAC pilot, Ford Air Control pilot, probably with Vietnam experience, that would say, okay, this and this and this, and then tell me what to look at, and then I'd fly on an AC-130 gunship the next day, and then on a HH-60, or, well, we didn't have 60s way back then, or UH-1, or an MH-53, um, and then I'd make a parachute jump into the water one day, and then an EOD, uh, you know, explosive device, you'd plan and plan that out the next day, or something just like that, or, or, or going a scuba dive, you know, where you're practicing inserting from, you know, over a mile away, and the water, So you're going to go underwater to your uh, target. I had so much fun, though. I'm telling you. I, I, I enjoyed every second of it. <laughs> I'm it, sure that's how we recruit other people, because there are people arguably weird, a, a little like me, uh, but better that love that stuff I, I i loved it different airplanes different situations with the army with the special operators you know going back and forth doing all of this so life for me as a very young lieutenant was it was nirvana for me i mean it was i loved it. I loved every every second
0: having not experienced it personally, just by listening to you share it, I I can see how you couldn't. I do think you, you mentioned something that even in the civilian world or the business world that I'm more involved in, I think is very unique. And that is the humility and situational awareness to listen to people who you may outrank, yet have perspective and experience that is valuable. And I can speak from personal experience myself and also with others who I've worked with, that it can be difficult to go into a situation where you know you're taking over for a group that does have more experience more expertise than you do so you hit on the importance of listening and learning and showing the respect and those types of things i'm curious if there's a quick lesson you can share that you learned for leading people and earning credibility in their eyes in a situation where they have more experience than you
1: yeah so one of the mechanisms, if you will, a communication mechanism that is perfected with a group of people that I was, and I will call it for, for kind of people outside of this, business. I will call it the fighter pilot debrief, where, as you can imagine, and you can even see parts of this in, in, in Top Gun, the, the new movie release, where you get a group of fighter pilots in a room and they've got, you know, they had cameras on, on their mission and they just flew them. They briefed the mission before they went. And then they, they did the mission and then they come back and now they're, they're debriefing the mission that they just performed. Okay. that That's what I mean. The fighter pilot debrief. Now, there are other kinds of debriefs in the special ops world that we do all the time. And just like a fighter pilot debrief, but, Because it's sexy sounding, I'm going to call it the fighter pilot debrief uh, because of Top Gun and those kinds of things. I think a lot of people would relate. So there's rules that you have when you go into that. You don't use your rank or your position or your degree or your PhD or your Or the books that you've written or the, the, you know, none of that, none of that is brought into the discussion in that room. The only thing you're talking about is completing that mission and did each single person or crew or whatever do what they were supposed to do? And it kind of goes like this. There could be let's say a colonel and everybody else is a, a captain or a major the colonel doesn't go now the colonel probably is the group commander or you know the vice wing commander or uh, uh, possibly even the squadron commander or whatever they just can't it, okay it, you leave that kind of at the door and I will speak with my hands because some fighter pilots that, uh, you know, you know, do that. So, okay. We briefed, we were going to be here strain level at, uh, you know, uh, 10,000 feet, you know, that uh, uh, you pitched out, you know, and you, uh, but then you found that, you know, uh, the bad guy was here on your six and instead of doing a barrel roll, you did this and, and you went this, you know, and, this, and the whole debrief is just data on what happened and it's, it's, it's purified data. If you, if you know what I mean, there's no political themes. Uh, Who did you vote for? Who cares? You know, what's your background, you know, what's your cultural background, what's your race, what's your religion, you know, how did you graduate from the air force Academy, All, all of that. None of it applies. The only thing applies is what you did on that mission. And the proof of the pudding for someone with a lack of experience and if you want to gain the appreciation of those who are more experienced is that you stand up and you just said, yep, uh, I was here. I was supposed to be here. Uh, I pitched, uh, you know, to the right. I should have pitched to the left. And um, I don't know what I was thinking. But I got my essay back, then I came back into the formation. See, if, if you just, without bullshitting, no, I'm sorry. I'm You're sorry. Okay. 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 Well, without bullshitting, without all of the, well, you know, I could have done, you know, you know, my, uh, my feelings were hurt. I had a headache, you know, my wife said, you know, like, stop, stop with all that stuff. It doesn't matter. Okay. You were in it. You did this. So the ability to stand up to your mistakes, if you will, and immediately, like immediately, to, I'm gonna fix that. Next time, I'm gonna fix it. We'll say I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, you know. That will gain you, it will gain you respect. Of course, if you're good, you will fix all of these mistakes. You actually want to make mistakes as quickly as possible so that you learn from each one of them and that you don't do those things again because you learn from it. And, but that will come out in the debrief, what I call the, the you know, the fighter pilot debrief. But the, there are, and soft and rangers are like that, and um, the special forces and all the air commandos, you know, in the soft world are like that. Same kind of debriefing uh, mechanism. And that works. It, it works to build respect. I'm and sure I would say that's where I got, not that I didn't make mistakes. Oh, I oh, made more than I care to think about. But you have to stand up to it right away. I mean, immediately. You can't think about it for a day because you're coming right in from doing the mission and you're debriefing it. You know, it's hot on everyone's mind and you can't have weenie ass excuses in those debriefs. It just doesn't work. So that's the communication paradigm uh, that you're in. And you can win a lot of respect by standing up to whatever mistake you made and
2: fixing it immediately. And then,
1: yeah, you can go to the bar and have a drink and Tell bullshit war stories, Uh, you know, when you're not in that debriefing uh, kind of mechanism. So Uh,
0: uh, to hear somebody with your career talk about the importance of being humble enough to listen to others who are essentially below your rank and to stand up and own your mistakes as quickly as possible. Those two themes carry over. Perfectly. To the business world to the leadership world those two lessons in and of themselves if people could just marry themselves to those two concepts they'd be so much more successful i I do want to be very respectful of your time and honestly i think to to try to give justice to the depth and breadth of your career and answer all the curious questions my mind has we could be here for a day but i just keep going there's two more questions that i would love to, to ask so for, for people who have any type of awareness of my background, they know I come from an interview and interrogation background, and now we're jumping way ahead in your career. Uh, but at one point in time, again, please correct me everywhere that I'm wrong right. if I was correctly. You were responsible for the task force charged with, we'll say capturing high value terrorists. And that point in time, the early 2000s, if I have the time frame right, that is around the time that my interrogation career was getting off the ground and running in the private sector. And there was all types of news stories, both good and bad, and books being published. And there was a lot of attention to the interview and interrogation experience that was taking place in that theater. And there was a lot of interest in the private sector. So I say all of that is a probably a, a windy backdrop to get to reflecting on your experience and understanding that you were in charge of the program not necessarily in the room interviewing people for the hvts that were captured and did experience some conversations i'm very curious as to the lessons that you and your group learned as some of the most effective techniques to build rapport with people and encourage them to share information that they didn't want to
1: right so as you know and this is uh, very been very politicized for a, a long time but there are generally speaking two types of of two categories of interviews there is the kind of interviews that you're absolutely positively the expert yeah. i can say that with what i know and you know i mean i um, I don't know what you, I mean, I, I would defer to your definition of what that category is, you know, non-combative um, or not, whatever, all of the adjectives, appropriate adjectives for that kind of interview. And then are there are other kinds of interviews that have been uh, politicized and over-politicized. Right. Agreed. And what are the mechanisms? You know, and yes, I'll have to talk about the elephant in the room. What are the mechanisms that people have used from waterboarding to other terrible, heinous things? Okay. I, I can't talk about terrible, heinous things because if I would have ever seen any terrible, heinous thing
2: as a commander, I'm responsible for it.
1: Nobody under me. Would have been responsible for that i would have been responsible for that and so i didn't and we didn't now
2: did i turn over a lot of people
1: that we had captured on the battlefield uh turn them over to other groups yes we did we did we did that and i'm very well that. I, I know the transfer i know you know, there's a whole separate uh, combat war story I tell about, uh, you know, flying into Pakistan to pick up the first group of people in Pakistan that were absolutely positively known terrorists. And and we were going to bring them to, and following all kinds of rules and procedures, we're going to bring them to Afghanistan. And so but that was uh, the early part. When I was the uh, Joint Task Force commander, and the title was to capture or kill high-value targets, uh, we did both, and was responsible for both. Uh, and I can go into each individual case. Uh, uh, you know, of course, I'm not, but 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 uh, but I could uh, because they're embedded in in my memory. And I can honestly say that um, we, we pretty much had uh, an art form in, to the way that where we knew people were, um, how to capture them. And if the capture didn't go smoothly and it became a very hostile engagement, we always had the appropriate amount of firepower to to overcome that and, and be successful. Now, a measure of success for me was not in, and that was, you can well imagine, uh, we did this with other special people. My little organization focused on just one category. There were other organizations that focused on all terrorists. That wasn't my organization. I was specifically looking at Iraq. And we'd made a distinction between uh, Sunni terrorists, terrorists and Shia terrorists. So we we'd made the uh, distinctions. And I had a deck of bad people that we were after. And we even validated that list through Interpol. Because I spent some time in Interpol uh, creating those lists and putting on what we call a red notes it's, an, it's like an international um order if you will under order but, you know, so if you find these people you need to arrest them you know bring them to uh justice whatever so I did that at Interpol and so in all of those things you would have to be very culturally aware of what you were doing because your sources didn't come from your, your sources were not like other Americans assigned to Afghanistan or Iraq that the people wouldn't be your sources you know Um, I don't call us dumb Americans but you know to some extent we were dumb Americans we we needed to be um, wedded in the cultures we were in and you had uh, to provide trust. Uh, you, I mean, you, there had to be a, a trust relationship because that's where your information was coming. And so we always would have to be very careful. And for example, when I see our recent withdrawal from Afghanistan, the reason people like me forget about the politics, the domestic politics that were so exercised that way we didn't because a lot of these people in that country that are from that country that helped us, we burned. And that's unacceptable to warriors like myself and others who had this trust relationship because their lives had depended on them and that, you know, they either saved their life or, or, or something had happened. And so why do you know, military guys get all exercised about things like this because if you applied this to anything else, you could understand. I mean, you could apply it to anywhere. You mean, you busted a trust relationship with someone uh, from another country, another culture? Yeah, you busted that relationship. Why? Because we were just going to leave. And I'm not here to make it to be a proponent one way or the other. We should have. We shouldn't. You know, Republicans better than Democrats. Democrats better than Republicans. Is it Biden, Trump. I, I don't want to get into any of that. I'm just saying at the lowest level, there is this trust relationship and people like me hate violating that trust relationship, even though it's most likely not with another American citizen. It's with someone else that's not an American citizen. That's what, that's what the trust relationship was all about. And so in wading into those things, uh, I would find myself at times at, in, where I would actually sit on the Iraqi National Security Council staff. As a member of that staff, as an American. I was sitting as a member of the Iraqi National Security Council staff, aware that there were both Sunni and Shia inside this organization. Americans were never going to just fix, like just, "Hey, we're going to fix you know, everything's going to be fixed." You know, Saddam Hussein was Sunni, okay? and a lot of other uh, current leadership, Shia. And, you know, and, you know, the Shia had felt politically that, you know, they finally got their their turn, if you will, to to run the country of Iraq. But it's, it. I mean, that's a, a kind of a too simplistic of a way to look at it. But when you're using sources that are Shia or Sunni, you have to know that they could be kind of against you or against another sect inside Iraq. It, 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 there's a weird trying, and if you bring uh, a Kurdish uh, people from the north, northern Iraq, then it, it's even more complicated. Uh, these things are complicated. and You can't just, you can't just have this American way. It, 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 it doesn't work, and you can't just overlay it. Oh, we're going to teach them uh, about democracy really, it's kind of a silly notion. What you can do is listen a lot and be very culturally aware and sensitive and know that one source one day could be for you and that same source the next day, maybe not because their family was threatened or there's something else going on that you can't see and that you don't know. And so many times inside this council, I would say, okay. Uh, And, you know, I had all kinds of translators there. So, you know, they understood my mannerisms and got to know me fairly well. I know this, that here's a list of these people. I know, but I won't ask you. I know you know that I know that you know that I know. These people that you know, that I know, you know, and I would go, we know all of that. I'm not going to ask you to betray a trust. But what I will be honest with you,
2: if I find them, I'm going to
1: kill them. You know, there'd be. So um, I understand. What you tell me, you know, you know, they they knew this. I could kind of, you know, bullshit them, and they would see through it. Even though it had different cultures, they would see through that eventually. They would know that I was hiding something, but I would tell them why. Uh, we have real evidence that this person right here developed this explosive penetrating bomb that can go through hummers. It can go through welds of steel and it devastates everything around.
2: I know where the materials come from. I know who built them. So tell that person I'm not saying you know them, but tell that I'm coming for them, and I won't stop until I'm dead or
1: something happens or they are. Now, okay, whether that's persuasive or not, I don't know. We were successful sometimes, and other times we weren't. Uh, We were successful because I had thousands of great people working for me, and if we were unsuccessful, that is solely uh, my fault. Success, they did. I I guarantee you. These were intel analysts, and these were uh, operators, a combination of really, really smart people, Uh, men and women, uh, all cultures, all backgrounds. You know, black, white, you know, Hispanic. I had all kinds of people, uh, you know, working for me, and they were really, really smart and good people. So any success we had, they they did it, and any failures were mine. So well, you know,
0: back to the ultimate that, responsibility.
1: That that's the. I, I want it's it's a weird kind of communication pair to. I, I don't I don't know how you put that in a. I don't know how you. I don't even know how you talk about
0: (laughs) at the at the very real and dangerous risk of oversummarizing something I wasn't a part of and can't completely understand because I I was in that theater, just picking up on some of the key components, the one of the phrases that I like to use is I make your story about me for a moment, I apologize, I waded right into that one. We like to say success in investigative interviewing often hinges on our ability to embrace the universality of the human experience that no matter where we're from there are universal things that we all think feel experience it can be locally different culturally different but at its core it's part of the human experience so when you talk about raising your cultural awareness when you talk about building trust when you talk about the importance of honesty following through when you talk about, I'm sure kind of layered in a lot of what you were saying was adapting to their preferred customs when appropriate, their preferred communication norms when appropriate, um, certainly relying and developing your awareness to not only their culture, but the, the specific translation process and all of those things were really important. Yeah. And a lot of that directly applies to conversations in the civilian world as well that if we take a minute to develop our situational awareness and understand the goals we're trying to achieve, the people we're trying to achieve them with and the context that we need to achieve them in that although they're different at least thematically a lot of those adjustments and considerations are the same.
1: Yep. And and, uh, and to put it in the communication world uh, your definition of like situational awareness is perfect. In the communication world, when I when I had no experience in the military, but you know I was doing my undergrad work in you know and took a communication class, I I, I remember being presented, you know how everybody says in a speech class, uh, you know, and I taught speech, so you know this comes out, uh, you know, know your audience. You know, I mean, that in every speech class in the country, you know, for, oh, you're going to give a speech. OK, you know, make it this way and this way and know your audience like I mean, that's part of every thing. Well, yeah. And, and I think that comes from way before this person had studied this. But the communication expert uh, or professor that talked about this back in the mid 60s called it the rhetorical situation. And his name was Lloyd Bitzer and i would encourage people that if they are finding themselves going into a situation that and they want to understand the communication world a little bit and whether they're going to be successful or not it's to really study lloyd bitzer like you has given a model and an outline to to map that rhetorical in other words your speech is going to be conducted in this kind of situation. And it is more than just study your audience. It is, you know, are, are, are you current? Or exactly. The physicality of it. The, I mean, it's, it's everything. And so if you study the rhetorical situation, it's provided me a great model. And that's why, like when I read your book, I went, man, this is Lloyd Bitzer-like, for me, in the communication world, because I go, these are tools that people need to be able to use. They don't solve all the world's problems, no. But you can't get to solving problems without mastering these tool this toolset. You you can't even arrive at some place where you can begin to master until you perfect uh, this kind of understanding. You know, and so. Lloyd Bitzer in the rhetorical situation. I would encourage those who, you know, he, he, he's easily findable, uh, you know, through search engines. But Lloyd Bitzer and uh, um, I, just in case, uh, I always have to be ready if someone uh, understands uh, uh, um, um, the It is. I mean, I can't keep, you know, I I know it sounds like I'm, I'm plugging you, but the reason I plug you is because this fits into my view of helping people increase their brain power, their thinking their, and how do you get the most out of not only a conversation, but how do you get the most out of looking at at a situation? And before you're going to give a speech of any kind, uh, studying it and having situational awareness and in combat situational awareness is everything e- it's everything going into combat without situational awareness whether you're flying a jet or whether you're on the ground or whether you're in some it, it it, it's you're you're gonna get killed by what you don't know I can almost guarantee that uh so
0: i've never been anywhere near that situation metaphorically speaking i can promise that in communication you're gonna get killed by what you don't know like and forgive me for stealing a metaphor from your very real combat experience but your career could be over your relationships could be over your opportunities could disappear your negotiations evaporate just by what you don't know yeah Um, um and, and again, thank you. I, I will include links for Lloyd Bitzer in the notes to this. So for okay. people who are right. interested, I will go do the search engines. I'll find it. I'll put it in here. We're already a couple of minutes over, and I, I can't hey. thank you enough for sharing your time. It's right. So much more I want to get into. Maybe we can do this again another time. But I, I would love to ask you one more question. Sure. For people who might not be aware, at one point in your career, you were a special advisor to the President of the United States regardless of people's political alignments, being a special advisor to the president of the United States is a big deal. I'm sure there's probably more people that do that than I know, but it still has to be a a very small group of people. So just one question that I would love to ask about that experience. And if there's a story you can share, great. If not, no worries. Speaking of persuasive communication, what is it like to have to approach the president of the United States with an idea that you believe into your bones, yet you're pretty sure they're not going to like, at least on initial contact.
1: Well, uh, when I was assigned to the White House uh, on the National Security Council staff, it was through. Um, I, I, I was a major. At the Pentagon, a major in the United States Air Force at the Pentagon, in an office we called Skunk Works. Uh, and skunk works, we did all kind of uh, special things, and that I won't go into. But it was it was it was married after Lockheed, uh, the airplane company, and their skunk works, and uh, a very famous engineer had developed uh, weapon systems platforms, like for example the SR seventy one. Okay, and that. You know, it's strategic reconnaissance asset that flies a lot faster than the speed of sound by a factor of a lot, and and we would it would take pictures of the former Soviet Union a lot. Okay, so this office was unique at the Air Staff because almost every uh, general officer who would become, you know, in the Air Force had had been in this office. I, I don't know how I got the opportunity to work in it, but I got the opportunity to work in this office. Uh, and I felt once again I felt kind of blessed, or you know, I, I mean, I, I, I really, I, I'm not being humble here. I, I didn't think I, I was smart enough or didn't have the Academic pedigree. Uh, I had a lot of ops experience. That's true. I had a lot of weird ops experience that separated me a little bit. But you know, I'm. You you could say I'm a dull butter knife. You know, uh, you know, academically, I I mean, that's how I viewed myself. So, uh, and I I loved working in the Pentagon at this point, and then they said, so, well, we need uh, someone to, to, go, to, uh, uh, to go to the White House and um, advise on the Haiti and Cuban uh, crisis that was developing. First, it was Haiti, and then it later would become Cuba. And I was going to do that, and then the Secretary of Defense said he wanted a special assistant, so I went from the air staff to work directly for the secretary of defense, John Henry, um, and advise him on the Haiti and Cuba. But I only did that for like three months. And he had either called the White House or the White House called and said, hey, we want uh, Mike Longoria to come over here, uh, work in the White House. So, I mean, I, I looked at these things as, uh, 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 yeah, yeah. You want to do that? Like, yeah, I'll do that. Like, are you kidding me? Are you sure you got the right name? I mean, you got the right social security number, right name, right? You sure? Well, okay. I mean, I, I, I will do any, literally I can do any job. I feel confident enough that I can do any job, but why I would get selected. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be as honest as I can. I don't know. Uh, Now I would study, uh, the issue significantly. I mean, it's all I did. Um, and I'm pretty good when I study an issue, um, intensely. And so that was the condition that I got to the White House and I was hired by Mort Halperin, uh, Mort Halperin, uh, a very uh, famous person. Um, was one of the reasons during the Nixon administration um, that the administration thought they needed to have White House plumbers. In other words, who's leaking the information from the White House to the outside world? And it was all uh, associated with the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And so that was both the, And he worked for him. He worked directly for Henry Kissinger, who was the national security advisor at the time. And so I would say that history is, uh, you know, weirdly unique. Uh, I don't want to say good or bad, because I think any experience is unique. But but he had a a certain reputation. But this was during the Clinton administration. So during the Clinton administration, people is smart, like Mort Halpern. Would want to come work for a Democratic administration, and especially someone like Bill Clinton, who was uh, literally brilliant. I won't go into politics because my politics probably very different. Probably very different. I don't want to say from the people that I worked for, but I had a great deal of respect for them and loyalty to them because I worked for them, you know, while I was at the White House. But my job while I was at the White House, was to explain military operations. And, and I did have a knack of being able to do that. You know, who does what, what unit's going here, what's this, because I was kind of purple. In other words, I understood the Army, I understood the Navy, I understood the Air Force. I, I, I had that kind of experience as a very a junior person, and a major still is kind of junior in, in the military. So that was the condition under which I found myself at the White House. But I wore suits and, you know, didn't have a uniform. Uh, but your ability to talk to the president is limited. Everybody thinks, well, you, you, you'll talk to the president every day. Well, okay, that's not true. Uh, I wouldn't even get to talk to the national security advisor, to the president, every day. I would talk to my boss, and that was Mort Halpern who worked for the National Security Advisor, who worked for the president. So it would be very rare, very rare, and it only happened twice, that I would actually get to have a one-on-one with the president of the United States. Now, for those that have done this a lot, they I ain't no big deal. For me, it was a big deal, a really big deal. And I will just kind of say I, I didn't convince the president to do anything. I mean, at my, yes, even though I was on the National Security Council staff, I wasn't going to convince the president of anything because that's not that's not how it would have worked. Um, you, you know, you would have had to convince the primary deputies, if you will. In the National Security Council on the on the staff. And then you would have to convince the National Security Advisor, okay, if this is an appropriate And they realized the National, even the National Security Advisor, would probably have to be seating the entire interagency, okay, represented by you know secretaries of their, you know, Secretary of Defense, you know, the you know, the, the Justice Department, the State Department. So you don't just um, you don't just go, hey, I, I got a great idea, and so I'm going to go right to the president, of the United States. It just, I, I mean, things just literally. Even back then, they 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 never worked that. But I did get the opportunity once to brief uh, President Clinton. And my view on President Clinton is, you know, I have a political view. I keep that separate. I kind of have a personal view even though I, I never saw anything untoward or anything. I never saw any. I Don't even know. I, 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 mean, I know about it because it was in the public, but I, I don't know any, ins- I don't have any inside information, none. Uh, all I know is that how did he personally interact with me when I walked into the West Wing and briefed this? And I'm just saying that interaction
2: has biased me for a long time. President Clinton is a brilliant person.
1: I, whether you like him, dislike him, I, I, I don't know. He's brilliant. And that comes out of the way that he has mastered. Mastered. It's It's like... You could have interviewed him for your book. Okay. I'm serious. He had mastered the way that he asks questions to get the most out of whoever was answering it. A master. I've never been, and I'll I'll tell you just one little example of how and it impacted me. Now I'd been a lot of, ran a lot of generals, a lot of things, done a lot of things, uh, been in combat, you know, you know, all kinds of things that were scary, all that kind of thing. But briefing the president of the United States has its own weird set of scariness, if you will. You're talking to the president of the United States. So I was explaining because he had asked. Um We were going to do something with Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. This is before we put (coughs) uh, terrorists. in. This was way before that. And we were worried about a second Muriel-type boat lift, where Cubans would be escaping and we'd have to kind of save them. And what distinction do we make between migrants and refugees? And, you know, there's a a big, huge uh, legal uh, distinction that we make. You know, migrants, uh, you know, we treat everybody with respect. Migrants are treated different than refugees. We legally, our entire structure is based on that. But when you find people are coming across in a boat, well, first, you might have to save them from the, the, the boat they were in. And if you save them, what, where, do you, where do you take them? Well, the United States Coast Guard, you're going to take them back here. Well, now they're on your shore, and what do you do? Or, or, and then do you take them back? Do you, take, you know, this is a complicated issue. It's even more comp complicated than our current border border in, which is, I, I don't want I don't want to make comparisons, but it's, it's complex, and I really feel for our current border patrol who has an unbelievable task to to manage. This. And everybody likes to second guess on both sides, and I hate it, I hate it because they're not there and they don't see the the tragedies that are unfolding. When you see the tragedies that are unfolding, it, it does change your perspective, and you soon forget about politics and you just go, "Wow, this is uh, tough." So, I was explaining to the president how the military will feel when given the mission for these humanitarian things. And what he wanted most, because he was so smart, he wanted to know the political dynamics that he could figure out. Why would a four-star general think this way? Why would he say this? Why would the commander of, of Northern Command be this way? Why would the commander of Southern Command be this way? Why? What what is what is driving them? So I would I gave this little briefing and then he asked and He leans over, he looks at me.
2: Well, Mike, what do you think?
1: Oh my God! Like uh, you, you say, that's a great interviewing technique. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah,
2: yeah. It's Um, it's unbelievable and I had to
1: pause just a minute and then explain I said you know this is the president of the United States I need to explain this in an executive version very accurately
2: what will happen and so I go yes Mr. President
1: You are going to get pushback from the Department of Defense. And you will get that pushback because
2: this, 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 and this. I didn't give him the answer. And he loved it.
1: I mean, maybe he didn't. I mean, I he had no reason to like make me happy. I was just a little, you know, put on uh, major on the staff. And he goes, that's ex- ex- exactly wanted, what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear what is most likely going to happen because now I can craft my presidential message based on that. In, in other words, for him, that was the truth that you, you, know, you can sugarcoat a lot of different things but no and it's not because of the department of defense they'll take orders mr president i mean you order them they're going to do it there's no question about that but will you get this kind of pushback bureaucratically that you probably don't want he says no no i of course i don't want it but i can handle it now that i'm i said yeah you you'll get it and i go I don't know how to The reason i can't write a book about it because you know i, I reveal no secrets i reveal no, I, I, i'm not revealing anything about anybody and all my comments about the president are, are positive because i i think he's that smart i really do um and when given really good information he uses it he doesn't challenge you in other words he didn't say Oh, no, you know, You he's the president of the United States. He didn't have to do any of that. He doesn't have to do it. And he didn't. So uh, it was memorable for me because I was so junior. And um, now remember, that has nothing to do with uh, my politics, his politics, or any of those kinds of things. It's just I happen to be um, part of the Clinton administration.
0: What, what an amazing experience in as i listen to that whole story themes that relate back to things you've already shared in the conversation your personal ability to it sounds like separate people from mission or responsibility from per- political beliefs all those things to recognize qualities in, in this case talking about the president of the united states that's again, complimentary of your approach and especially and unfortunately, in today's day and age where people are incentivized to run as fast as possible to one polar opposite and hunker down. You know, there's some real value, there's unspeakable value, unspeakable is typically negative value that I can't put into words into being able to separate all of those things to find value, potentially hidden value in a relationship or an opportunity. So that is absolutely worth highlighting. And then There's probably no stronger illustration of a superior subordinate conversation than someone who's talking to the president of the United States and for someone to lean forward who is in a superior position or go the president of the United States in this conversation and say, what do you think? How do you feel the personal validation, the personal respect, the personal appreciation that's communicated with just that simple statement. So you could parse that one question, is that really a valuable question, debate for another day. And someday we're going to talk about debate if, if we have the time. Right. But for somebody in that role to deliver that question in that way, in that context, is so powerful because of the individual respect, validation, appreciation it's showing. So there's, there are enormous lessons there to be learned, even in the summarized version of that story.
1: Yeah, and if we're going to, and I appreciate that, uh, I actually did uh, kind of use that technique because, you know, being a senior officer, senior leader, commander, um, I'm really no different than most every other senior officer, leader, commander, that they fight for listening to all sources, number one. I don't know of any, I really don't know of any peer that goes, oh, no, I I, I don't want to hear from the, the airmen or the NCOs. But I, I've never heard that. In other words, I'm certainly not unique. Um, I would say that is a, a standard way of doing business. You want to. And I've had commanders tell me this, and I've told people the same thing, regurgitated this. Uh, The good news, yeah. I want to hear good news. Sure. The bad news, I have to hear. I have to hear that. And I'm never going to penalize or punish anyone for giving me the bad news. That is the worst thing you possibly could do. You have to encourage people, a whole structure of people that feel compelled to tell you um, when something's not going right. Um, hey, you know, it's just like if someone said, you know, hey, you know, sir, you're, you're kind of old. Yeah. Kind of fat. Yeah. Kind of ugly. Yeah. Not all that smart. Yeah. Okay. So far we're not really having a de- de- debate because I agree with everybody on those things. Like we're in complete agreement. So can we talk about the the, the policy issue <laughs> In other words, working when someone calls people a name and and we do that now the, the the social media everybody you can't have a discussion like you want you can't listen to something you can't explore um, the diversity of opinions you can't explore that because there no go lanes you can't you just can't go there it, it's because someone will call you. You're racist, you're homophobic, you're xenophobic, you're some kind of phobic. I go, well, no, no well, stop calling me a name. Can we talk about the substance of this thing? No, you can't talk about the substance of this thing because I have now called you a name. Yeah, I know. Why did you do that? You, do you think that makes your argument? Because it doesn't make an argument. It just means that you've virtue signaled. And you can't get virtue that way. I, I tell groups young, it's not possible to gain virtue by telling the world that you have virtue. It just doesn't work that way. And you may it may you may feel good for a little bit because you called somebody out. You oh, that thing, that's horrible. That person is horrible. Okay. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. I, I don't know. I, uh, normally, I don't know enough or haven't kept up with what some movie star said or what some politician. you know, uh, maybe I haven't kept up with the currency. And so I really, I, I never participate in those kind of things. But I don't like it when the conversation ends or the debate ends or people. Think it strengthens their argument to call a person a name. So I've had to work with people who most likely were trying to kill me or my soldiers or air
2: or sailors, or Marine. You can't tell me that you can't. Because you can't, you, you can't and
1: you should. And the more you, and investigate, the, the more value you're going to get. And if you shut that off, if you close close your mind off,
2: it's going to be good for you. And, you know, it won't be good for you
1: because you're stopping. You're, and you don't want, you want to encourage more conversation. I don't want to shut someone up. I want to hear them. But I want to do it just like you suggest discipline because if I do it in a discipline I'm going to gain a lot out of it and if I remember and take good notes I'm going to gain from that conversation that's my back to you and
2: I'm because uh, when I say you put the book on you know and that's why uh,
1: so much and at other Debates and arguments and current I'm willing to talk about anything to uh, abort public policy issues that we deal with. I can deal with them in a way, hopefully, that doesn't make people mad, but listens to all voices. Society can make good public policy. Is not through our bifurcated I'm going to listen to only Fox News, or I'm going to only listen to MSNBC or CNN, or I'm going to only listen to blue people or red people, Democrats or Republicans or conservatives or liberal. not through a bifurcated way. And I'm not opposed to any of those ways. I'm just, that's not how we're going to arrive at good public policy. What's good for the most people, most of the time, and it doesn't hurt any small group of people. It doesn't subvert a small group of people, however, they identify themselves. You can't do you, you got to support the majority, but you also cannot hurt people in, in these smaller. You can't arrive at good public policy without these discussions.
0: We can't I mean, move, we can't yeah. move anywhere. Important topic without these conversations. And I I think potentially the perfect way to wrap this conversation up. And again, forgive me for backing off of your experience. If you were willing to listen and learn from people who were literally trying to kill you, then what excuse do the rest of us have to not being willing to listen and learn to those around us? And and I don't think there's a, a more powerful illustration there. I've already taken an extra half hour of your time today hopefully down the road maybe we can do this again there's so much that you're still doing for our country from an advisory standpoint from an education standpoint so lots of work that you've done that hopefully we might be able to find another time to explore but i i know this says it said a lot and it sounds trite but thank you so much for everything that you've done for our country thank you for all the people that you've led and you've taught and you've mentored along the way it is truly appreciated. And I thank you for your time today. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Okay.
1: bye. Right. Thanks, Mike.
0: Once again, thank you so much to Michael Longoria for taking the time to join us and share all of those stories, all of that expertise, and all of those learning experiences with us. Hopefully everyone found some things that they can apply to their life and their conversations as well. It's a pretty powerful statement when somebody says, if I could listen to somebody who I knew wanted to kill me, then what excuse do I have not to listen to somebody else? Really amazing perspective and experience. Thank you very much, Michael, for coming on board and joining us today. Once again, on the way out, thank you to our sponsors, Humantel. Check out Humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25 for a 25% discount on the industry leading training for how to understand what people are likely thinking and feeling as you begin to identify their emotional shifts in the context of any conversation. Emotional Intelligence Magazine. Thank you, Brittany, Nicole, Connor, Savarda. Please check out ei-magazine.com for their ever-growing content of emotional intelligence resources. And then, of course, IAI, the International Association of Interviewers. Our friends over at IAI are working hard to consistently update the materials and resources that they have, put on new events and make sure that professional interviewers constantly have the tools and resources available to conduct morally, legally, and ethically successful interviews across contexts. So thank you to all of our sponsors. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us again today. We appreciate you watching our show. Please do all of the things that the algorithms ask us to do. Like the show, share the show, tell all your friends about it. If you have anybody that you believe would be a great guest, please let us know so we can invite them on the show as well. Thank you very much. Take care of each other and we'll see you next time.